think there's just a lot of latent potential in MENA, specifically in that tech space, right? We think of, you know, there's more than 100 million people under the age of 35. There'll be 700 million people living in the region by the end of the century. Very similar to maybe emerging markets like India and China, the value and the premium people place on education is very, very high. Welcome back to Wise On Air, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds on the future of education. My name is Basim and I'm the producer of the show. Today we're going to be talking about a region that is often overlooked in the global edtech landscape. The Middle East and North Africa, or commonly known as MENA. MENA is home to more than 400 million people with a young and tech-savvy population, a growing demand for quality education, and a huge potential for digital transformation. But despite these favorable conditions, MENA's edtech sector has been lagging behind other regions in terms of investment, innovation, and adoption. Why is that? And what are the opportunities and challenges for edtech entrepreneurs and investors in this region? To answer these questions, we speak to Nafid Abdaqaq, managing partner of BLDR Ventures. Nafid has had extensive experience studying, analyzing, and working in MENA's education sector, helping spearhead Edraq, an online learning platform that serves millions of learners across the Arab world. He's also served as a senior advisor at the Queen Rania Foundation for more than six years. And Nafid is also an avid writer on his blog, Nafid's Notes, where he discusses key trends in edtech and more. We thought his article, Mina, EdTech's Sleeping Giant, was really interesting and I'd like to preface this episode by reading a few excerpts for you from the article itself. So here in the article, it says, Mina's demographics are ripe for EdTech companies to break out. The population is a pyramid tilted toward youth that will continue to yield a growing number of students. UNESCO estimates that the region has up to 100 million school-age students. Egypt alone will add almost 1 million new students to its higher education system by the end of 2021. The total addressable market is significantly larger if we factor in the reskilling and upskilling of adult workers needed across MENA as a result of the fourth industrial revolution. Particularly relevant in the region where university degrees are often correlated with unemployment. In parallel, internet and smartphone penetration, as well as GDP per capita across MENA, affirm that innovations like affordable online learning are viable. Excluding Syria and Yemen, internet penetration in the Arabic-speaking Middle East is over 90%. Smartphone penetration in the region is among the highest globally at 97%. Critically, the willingness to adopt tech products is high. Many opinion polls show that MENA youth believe that the internet will play a vital role in their education going forward. So that's what it says there in that excerpt, which made us think, despite all those figures, why is it that MENA has yet to become a leading region in edtech development and adoption? Later in the article, Nafis details about how they spoke to more than 50 leading edtech startups and investors in the region, and they came to find that MENA's edtech ecosystem faces several key challenges related to market fragmentation, digital payments, and exits. Now, we encourage you to read this article in full, which can be found in the link in the description. And of course, stay tuned to hear straight from Nafid on this pressing topic, among many others in this episode. Now, let's jump to WISE director and host of this episode, Elias Fulfoul, to kick off the conversation. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Nafiz. Likewise. Maybe if I start... (laughs) With the fact that we are in London yeah. and we're talking about the region, we're, we're too, so today's session is really about MENA. I couldn't not think about the fact that while, while I was coming here, that 
talking about the region once again from the West. And it, it, it's almost reminded me a little bit that, you know, that's what the colonizers have done. <laughs> are we, are we, do we believe that we own a, a certain truth because we left uh, our countries and now we, we look at it from a distance with some emotions? I think it's, it's a really important question to answer and I think, and to ask and then answer. I think to your point, I think like some of the biggest problems in our region have really been about people from outside the region, you know, giving uh, lectures, uh, pontificating, uh, and just, you know, being very prescriptive without spending time on the ground. So I think that's really something that's very important to think about. Something that I'm very, very conscious of as well. You know, I think both of us have spent a lot of time in the region. I spent most of my life, most of my career in the region, but I mean, there's no way around it. The past, say, five plus years have been really split between here and whether it's Jordan, Egypt, uh, the UAE, Saudi, other parts of the world. So there are sort of, I think, two, um, of two minds. In one way, sadly, London is the capital of the Middle East. Ironically, sometimes it's easier to meet other Arabs, other people from the region in London uh, than having you know all of them meet in Saudi or Qatar. I think that's, that's starting to change. Uh, and inshallah, things will even get better. But there's a lot, I'd say, of, like I always tell people, like when I live in London, I don't feel like I'm that far away from the Arab world. Like it's, it's not, you're always hearing Arabic. It's very, uh, there's an interesting discussion there to be had around Brexit, but then making it uh, visa-free for everybody from the region to come here. Uh, but I think that there's no denying that I, if you really want to solve uh, the problems on the ground, you need to invest, you need to, by being on the ground, invest with the people that are there day in, day out, especially in something like education, right? Like, who are the people in the classroom? Who are the people operating uh, within the system that are, you know, struggling with it, that are innovating within it? Um, so I think it's it's an interesting tension, but being sometimes a bit far removed also gives you that perspective and that vantage point. And if you want to do work, I'd say that's pan-regional, it's sometimes, ironically, I'd say easier to do it from a place like London or maybe even Paris. Uh, as long as, again, you're constantly still spending a good, healthy amount of time in the ground, in the trenches with people that are solving the problems. I Actually, the first time I got to know about you was from a dear friend. Her name is Isabel Howe. Yeah. That's been doing some fantastic work uh, in impact and early childhood education. And now she, she, she joined Stanford. the accelerator at Stanford. And she, and she told me, yeah, they, they, you should get to know a little bit more what Nafis is doing. And so that's how the first time I heard about your work. And then I start reading some of the write-up you post. I, I want to get into the blog, uh, specifically the blog you uh, you have, Nafis Notes. What is some of the objective you want to reach by writing your thinking and, and sharing your observations? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, first of all, to start on a sort of personal level, that then maybe to go on a sort of societal level. Personally, I think, you know, writing is really important because it helps you sort of structure your thoughts. Um, there's a quote that I'm going to butcher but that says, you know, if you think you have a concrete thought, it's only true until you start writing it. And then you realize, no, I actually haven't thought this through. So I think in a nice way, um, writing forces you to you know, structure your thinking very, very well. And the more I write about something, uh, I think the better I can think about it, which is, I'd say, really the main goal for me. is So it's a way for me to learn in public, think in public, put stuff out there, get feedback, get criticized on it, and sort of learn and grow. Um, I think more of sort of a maybe um, as a societal level, sort of there are two themes that I just want to push, and I'm sure that we'll touch on them. One is, I think, Mina's at Tech Sleeping Giant, so trying to highlight as many of that as possible. Um, and that may be primarily relevant to the MENA region, but also relevant to other emerging markets. The second point is what I call, and what other people may be also called, you know, pedagogy-first approach to education. Um, I think, you know, technology can be really, really powerful, but the risk 
And the mistake that we keep falling back into is assuming, you know, okay, this technology is going to be a silver bullet that's going to fix all problems. Uh, it really, and, and one of my pieces, you know, talks about, you know, it's it's the Game Boy, welcome to London, <laughs> um, not the metaverse. Uh, and the Game Boy is a very, very interesting example, right? Because when Nintendo launched the Game Boy, and it's probably like one of the, I think it's like the third or fourth most successful console of all time, it was all sort of very old, withered technology that just changed how people played. And that's kind of what you want to do with learning. It doesn't matter if you're using Apple Vision or if you're using, you know, a chalkboard. How are you actually changing how people learn? How are you changing the dynamic and the relationships within the classroom? So I'd say that pedagogy first approach uh, and, and mindset is kind of what I'm trying to put forward. And then this is among the biggest challenges you, you see in the reason. Oh, the, for sure. We don't have you know, consistent pedagogies and we don't... We, are we catching up on, on, on a minimum benchmark that... Um, I, mean, I, I think it, the, the problem in the region sometimes it, it's hard to sort of generalize and, and paint with a broad brush but I'd say generally speaking we've been good because and certainly maybe places like the GCC because the funding is there you can always get the latest tech Yeah, but the tech doesn't matter if you're not necessarily changing what's happening in the classroom yeah. this whole idea again is like the very old uh, but true maximum, like, the quality of any education system cannot exceed the quality of its teachers. Yeah. Um, but it's easier to go for the red ribbon moments. It's easier to, you know, take a picture of all the teachers with iPads or all the teachers now with like Apple Vision goggles. But a teacher before and after training looks exactly the same. So it's not as easy to sort of take a picture of them and sort of announce it. But again, I'd say like there are certainly, you know, pockets of excellence differ from country to country. But I'd say generally speaking, if you look at PISA, you look at TIMS, you look at any maybe international assessment out there, it's very clear, you know, we're not, even our sort of top private schools are sort of not as close as they need to be to the global average. You strike it two questions. I, I just want to focus on the gaming, the gameful design as a solution that needs to be adopted in the learning pedagogy. Explain a little bit more this concept. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I think it's, it's something that I'd say I'm, I'm still thinking about. You know, there are people that have spent a lot of time thinking about this as well that have inspired me to think about it more. So obviously, you know, Seymour Papert at MIT talked a lot about this whole idea of hard fun. And then that's really what, what people want. You know, they want to enjoy your challenge. And people don't want learning to be easy. But the goal shouldn't be to make learning easy. The goal is how do you make the difficulty, the desirable difficulty, enjoyable. And I'd say... The best example out there, or at least one of the best, is games. You know, that some yeah. of these games are really, really hard. They take a lot of time for you to like learn them, master them, etc. And a leading thinker in this space is James G. at uh, Arizona State University. And he, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he has this really, really great analogy where he says, in games, you play the game and then only go to the manual if something is unclear. Mm. In school, we teach you the manual and we get you memorize it, but you might never play the game. Yeah. So for me, the question is, you know, how can we bridge that divide as much as possible? Again, there are a lot of levers in there. There's an interesting work done by Valerie Shute at the University of Florida around what her and one of her professors, uh, Sayyid Ahmed, uh, talks about uh, stealth assessments, mm-hmm. which is in a game, you're all constantly being assessed. You, mm-hmm. you need to defeat the boss. You need to go to the next level. And it's kind of part of playing. You don't stop and say, okay, now let me sit and take a test. Uh, so how much closer can we get education to that? How is it linked to incentives or motivation? Or Because, for example, we, we do have a massive challenge when it comes to retention. And this is not only in MENA, this is across the world. It, do, do you feel that this kind of game gameful type of design in, uh, implemented in pedagogies are 
you know, a good incentives, a good motivation element, a good retention element. Yeah, I mean, so, so I have an entire piece just, I'd say, on motivation. This whole idea, right, like we talk about that the learning isn't the filling of a pail, it's the lighting of a fire. It's when, when somebody is excited about something they want to learn about, it's like almost impossible to stop, stop. Them yeah. learning. Yeah. They'll just go down that rabbit hole. Versus once somebody isn't as excited about something, it's like really, really hard. We need to push them. So creating this poll, I think games are very, very good at that. But there's a lot of, you know, science on this, like self-determination theory, the four C's of intrinsic motivation. I think there's a lot there that we need to think about a lot more when we think about money. In general, our, I'd say, approach has been, this is going to be on the exam, so you need to study it. You need to, that's just not motivating. Yeah. For most people. Uh, you really need to figure out how do you make this exciting for them. And that makes it very hard and goes to my previous point. It's like, are we equipping our teachers to do that? Like there was a saying in Arabic, right? Like, mm. if we haven't equipped our teachers, if we haven't motivated our teachers, if we haven't paid them enough, are they going to be able to transfer that light? That And we're not. I mean, the region is not paying. The region is not. Uh, again, even if I take the Tunisian case, back in when we, when we uh, got our independence, teacher payment was very high. And, and actually... You need to do a specific test to become a teacher. It, it was an important role you play in a society. In the more recent reforms, basically the dropouts go to become teachers, and and that's a policy. Yeah, yeah. well, hundreds. Well, I mean, I think. So I mean, I also put I spent a lot of time working in Jordan. Talk about that in Jordan, the route to become a teacher could just be really, really improved. Right now, it's just to take a number for the civil service bureau, and you basically just wait your turn. It yeah. needs to be. A, it's not as rigorous as as it should yeah. be. And yeah, you. By design, it's a lot of what I talk about, and without some getting too sort of polemical about this, but it's failure by design. Yeah, yeah. But it's also because, like, what are the other incentives within the system? Oh, you know, we have an unemployment problem. Yeah. And I think, you know, there was a minister of education in Jordan that said, you know, the prime minister needs to decide am I trying to help them fall by unemployment or my reforming education? Yeah. Because I cannot do both at the same time. Because yeah. If we continue to see the ministries of education as, you know, okay, you know, anybody can become a teacher, um, they can absorb more administrators than, again, okay, maybe I'm bringing down unemployment. Yeah. But in the long term, I'm not really solving yeah. my educational reform challenges. So, but I would just want to add, again, it's not just in the region, right? Like, oh no, teacher retention, teacher pay, teacher It's quality. a challenge across the world. In this country, yeah. in the UK, in the US, it's across the uh, world. I mean, I mean, probably in the West, even it, it's going to get even more serious in the next few years because of the Asian population, be, because of... It's in the only place, I mean, Singapore, which is a city-state, is probably one of the only places in the world that struggles. But again, it's... And that's the other problem, like with with like what does Singapore do? Singapore is a tiny city state, very very different history, story, national identity. You can't take all what Singapore is doing. Let's try to do with them Qatar and do it. It's just very very different. I, um, so I'm just saying, like this is not about you know self-flagellation, saying oh the region. This is a global problem. But again, our experiences are where we come from, what we've seen. I, mean, I, I was privileged enough to, to spend time in, in Singapore and even the Singaporean themselves, they didn't believe where they reached. So really? I mean, yeah, we, we, I, I did my master at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public oh. Policy and, and during my two years, we had the most amazing privilege to meet Mr. Lee Kuan Yew himself because he was uh, very old back then. Yeah. Uh, the first year we met him, he was just given a lecture to, to the 65 students as a special lecturer or because he was a minister mentor and the only thing actually he gave his name to as a legacy was to the school he did not want to give his name to a street to an airport that that's the only thing his entourage managed to convince him i'm just mentioning you mentioning singapore and i'm they started with education yeah, they yeah. took the best brain when they got the independence and then what and then when malaysia kicked them out of the, the union they had is 
and, and, and the massive investment happened at the education and teachers are well paid in, in Very, Singapore. Yeah. Now, probably they have shortages because of all the same issues, right? We can get back to these yeah, topics. Yeah, yeah. I want to just do a little personal journey of yours. Yeah. I, want, I, I just want the audience to understand where did you start? Because my next question will be why did you chose to be in this field? And I feel folks who go to education or health are the idealists. I just want to understand the journey. Where did you study and, and what was some of the aspiration in the beginning? Yeah, I mean, as I said, like, well, this is, sometimes people think this is a bit corny, but like, this is really, like, for me, there's big fan of Arabic literature, Arabic poetry, uh, and then there's this sort of one line of poetry that, like, I heard, I think, in grade 8, which is, And I kind of, like, you know, as a 14-year-old, <laughs> I saw Omar Oberish's line, kind of asked myself, like, and again, this is far away from, you know, okay, let's go back to the golden age. Just like right now, where is that platform? Who is doing uh, an incredible job? And I was sort of born in Saudi, grew up in Palestine, but at this point was sort of doing high school in the UAE. And like, I'd say, like, obviously the UAE has been sort of Dubai specifically, you know, as a journey, just very, very interesting to see how an inspiring, uh, how quickly things have moved. Uh, but then, you know what, when I got to university, I think like, you know, I would have been the one who does all this with take the platform. And I think that's where I quickly and maybe naively, first of all, it's education. You know, if I can get as many. And ah, I, so you started early, the, the thinking about being involved yeah. in the field. Yeah, I mean, I'd say when I went to, so I went to Yale for undergrad and I was pre-med. The idea was that I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Uh, but then my first year of sort of pre-med, I was studying cognitive science. I was like, my impact at best is going to be, you know, one patient at a time. Mm. You know, very fascinated by the brain, always been like passionate about medicine, but I... So that's when I realized I'm not going to change the Arab world if I become a neurosurgeon. I'm not sure I'm changing anything now. Well, <laughs> at least back in university, you know, listening to the Helm al-Arabi on YouTube, to the four Spotify, oh, and are like, oh yeah, how am I going to do this? Uh, so that's when I you know, pivoted, started to do economics because I wanted to understand macroeconomics. And then uh, Yale had this program called the World Fellows Program, uh, where they brought, I'd say, inspiring leaders from around the world and I was lucky enough to be the world fellow liaison to Muna Abu Sleiman, um, Saudi, I'd say, entrepreneur, founder, and, and she gave me this book called Generation in Waiting. And it talked about, you know, the unemployment challenges and all the different things in the region. That's where, like, okay, you know, it has to be educational. So that pushed me, I'd say, to then do my undergraduate thesis on curriculum reform in the region. So I did, I looked at comparatively the UAE and Jordan, what is stopping the curriculum reform. Uh, and then from there, I'd say, you know, when it's strategy consulting in education, uh, moved to work for the Queen Rania Foundation in Jordan. And I think there is where the first time I full question was like, what is the platform creating for the Arab world? Was very lucky to get the opportunity at the Queen Rania Foundation to venture build Idrak, yeah. which is an online learning platform. Today it's 7 million learners. Wow. But there was, you know, this was, I'd say, very, very unique. That's probably among the first, can we call it? Yeah, it's a yeah, book platform, it's a book platform. Yeah, yeah. completely made by the reason, yeah. for the reason. Yeah, I think, you know, when, so we were in Davos in 2012, from edX, Daphne Kohler from Coursera at the time, Sebastian Thron at Udacity. And I was like super excited. I was like, you know, how are we going to bring this yeah. to the region? And I think you are the Queen Rania Foundation and Her Majesty specifically, you know, we're very excited about the idea, very visionary about it. And yeah, 2013, there was this question, like, will they come? Will people even come to sort of the platform? Obviously, like, completely, I'd say, exceeded our expectations. Yeah. It was incredibly, 
um, fortunate and lucky. So did that for about five years and then moved with the foundation here in London to help us work on fundraising for Idraq and sort of other efforts. Um, so this was probably like when he said, like early 2017. And since then, I'd say been back and forth. But then post-pandemic, uh, I started reflecting on what do I want to do? How do I have more of a role? What's the next? Okay, we built Idraq. What's the next platform? We want to create, so took a break, did my master's at Harvard in international neuroscience, and then came back and reconnected with a few friends that helped with Idraq at the time. We ended up launching Builder, which is a venture builder focused on, I'd say, the learn-to-earn cycle in the region. How do we create other platforms that specifically tackle learning and earning in the RENA region? Yeah, yeah. And so you, so right now with Builder, you, it, it, it's, it's a fund, but it's, it's more than a fund in the sense of you're really involved. So you, you're not gonna invest in. You invest in a smaller number of companies that you truly believe in and you're going to put a percentage of your time exactly. to, to, to make sure that it takes off. Yeah, I'd, I'd say we're kind of this mixture between an operator and investor. We're kind yeah. of like a professional co-founder. So depending on sort of where in the founder's journey we start, I'd say in some instances, you know, we start from zero. Or the, we identify the problem, start ideating around it, validating solutions, and then attract the founder. And i say that's probably the hardest way to build a company. But usually, you know, a founder will come to us aligned around one of the themes we care about and learn to earn, and we'll start building with her, with them around, okay, what could this look like? And then we come in as kind of like a Swiss Army co-founder. We have the engineering, the design, the product, uh, and usually I'd say write the first check into the company. So invest between one hundred to one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and then help them. So very much YC type of exactly. Yeah. I would say just a lot more. But I mean, speaking of YC, you know, one of the things we're looking at now, and I think you and I talked about it a bit, is is there opportunity in the region for a pre-seed at Tech Accelerator? Yeah. That is kind of like YC for education. Yeah, my answer is we need we need patient capital. Yeah. We need we need a lot of patient capital. Is it is it reasonable and realistic that you're trying to cover MENA? Because MENA is a big region. Yeah. And MENA, MENA has different challenges, different historical background, different languages. Yes, Arabi al-Fusha, no, no. rights are all, but, but there is... Oh. From from North Africa to GCC to yeah. Levant and 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 then you you also have unfortunately a, a sad story of, of countries that are going through conflict. It, is it just a brand to say Mina or no, it's, a, it's, a, it's a I'm challenging you a little no, bit? No 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 no. I love it. I love it. I, mean, I, I think I think it's a great question. I think it's certainly a challenge to only do Mina uh, or to say to say Mina because like you said, like different countries have sort of different characteristics, different needs. I think, you know, again, something I wrote about, we talked about this whole idea of like Amina 1, Amina 2, Amina 3. Explain that to the... Uh, yeah, I, I, I love it. <laughs> I mean, I think, again, like if you take sort of purely the economic, you know, GDP per capita data and you kind of like segment the region, you end up with kind of sort of three. And again, this is a high level, I say very coarse classification of, you know, kind of like the GDP per capita of France. And that's also, on you know, 45 million people in the region. These people are, I'd say highly westernized, I mean, sort of English first or French first. And these are people where, you know, if you've achieved product market fit in Europe, you can probably, you know, try to think about product market fit in uh, a place in, in, in MENA 1. And again, this is across countries, you know, this isn't, you know, Saudi versus Egypt. This is, you know, a certain segment of the population in Saudi, a certain segment of the population in Egypt, in Tunisia, etc. And then MENA 2, you know, it's closer GDP per capita of Indonesia. It's maybe a big part of the region. And those are people that are maybe... Arabic first, but the kids are, uh, I'd say, speak English, very exposed to English. And then Mina 3, which is the majority of the region, are people that are almost exclusively Arabic. And that gets the closer, maybe, the GDP per capita of places like, you know, Pakistan or something like that. And then, you know, if you have GDP product market fit, obviously, keeping in mind sort of the linguistic, uh, maybe sort of adaptation and uh, sort of translation in Pakistan, you could get it with sort of Mina 3. 
So it sort of really depends mm. sort of how you think about it. But I will say a lot of shared challenges. But again, it, one of the things we could also talk about is the cross-border registration is sort of very difficult. But the problem is like none of our markets alone are sort of big enough to only build for Saudi, to only... You could try to build, maybe for example, only for Egypt. But if you really wanted to be a global company, we need to be building for Saudi, for yeah. Egypt, for jo uh, Jordan, Morocco, or Tunisia. You want to build something that's pan-regional. Yeah. And sort of then use that to sort of... And again, I think I know one of the things I think maybe in your interview with Sam so came up is why why would you only build a company for me and we build a company for the globe? Yeah. But I think the way you start with that is like local market, regional yeah. market, and then... And again, obviously, there are different theses around, no, just, you know, build for the U.S. from day one. And a lot of people try to do that, some of them succeed. Yeah. Uh, but I'm bullish about the people that are building for me and I'm excited about building across me. Okay, in, in a sense, you, you you can also, at some point, rely on local partnership to navigate the, yeah. the regulatory environment that is different in each region. You, so you, you write a lot about another interesting concept, which is our region as a sleeping giant. I spent a bit of time in Southeast Asia. As I mentioned, I, sp I studied in Singapore. I backpacked in all Southeast Asia. I, I was really curious to understand what's happening in China. So I, I li lived in China back in 2012. And that was a real giant. And the giant has waken up. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> and, and the giant has created a bit of, a bit of uh, for the West at least, a bit of uh, you know tension. And I, and I really hope that they get to talk to each other because I think the, there's much more we can lose if they get into but going back to our region, there's also another giant, India. Also, we see beautiful progress. Is this giant concept in our region, is it... I want to believe we do have giant because we have amazing people who get out of our countries and make it to a level of contribution that is just uh, global, right? Yeah. What, what is the concept and, and what, how do you see this? Yeah. And how do we, we really unlock the promises of, of such a concept in our region? Yeah, no, no 100%. I mean, I think... The concept is pretty simple, right? I think there's just a lot of latent potential in MENA, specifically in that tech space, right? Like we think of, you know, there's more than 100 million people under the age of 35. There'll be 700 million people living in the region by the end of the century. 700 million by 2000. Yeah, so it's going to be a sizable market. Uh, and there's a huge, and you will know this as well, right? Like, demand, like very similar to maybe emerging markets like India and China, the value and the premium people place on education is very, very high. And right? like people will go into debt, they'll sell the house, they'll do anything just yeah. for their kids to learn. Yeah, we're just and, and the demand is there. I'd right? say so just the access and the supply of edtech um, and education just hasn't been sort of equally distributed, hasn't been at the same level of quality. Look at Egypt, like the tutoring market in Egypt alone is like over a billion dollars a year. That's just, that, that just private doodle. Um, and obviously, there are a lot of startups that are trying to capture that. You take that across the region. So I think there's a lot of latent potential there that's just waiting to be unlocked. Um, I think for it to be unlocked, it's certainly not deterministic, but it's not that it will be. I mean, I believe it will be, and I hope it will be, and I want to be part of the force that changes and sort of leads to that. But there are also certain scenarios where you would, we miss on this sort of opportunity. Uh, and I think it comes down to, to, to a few things. One is, you know, from a policy and regulatory perspective, like any other maybe sort of nascent startup ecosystem, what's the enabling regulations? How are, how easy are you making it for people to, you know, start a company in Egypt, build and, and sell to Saudi and vice versa? And I think, you know, those are really, you know, Saudi Arabian market are, are the pillars of yeah. Like if, if those markets open up on each other, then it becomes easier to then open to secondary sort of markets across the region. Even build, I'd say, for either like sub-Saharan Africa, yeah. um, the subcontinent. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in a very interesting way, you could build 
globally relevant companies for that kind of global South based in the region. That's kind of, I'd say, our vision with builders. You know, can you build global companies from Riyadh to the world, from Doha to the world, from Abu Dhabi to the world? Uh, and then there's no reason you can't, as long as sort of the regulators and they're clearly very excited about this. So I'd say one, getting the regulators in the policy, which will hopefully then you know, trickle down to creating more and more talent density. Uh, and then the talent density is people already in the region, people coming to the region. And I think you're seeing more and more of that happen, certainly you know, post-COVID. Uh, and the last thing I'd say, at least from an ed tech perspective, just to bring this to the end of the conversation, it has to be pedagogy first. Mm. I think the kind of lazier temptation is, oh, you know, the metaverse is now hot. Uh, are we building universities in the metaverse? Oh, now we're... Uh, teaching like your entire education is going to be on the blockchain why yeah i can see maybe a few helpful use cases but is that the real feature yeah oh now chat gpt is there we're going to use llms to solve and again very powerful technology but what are you doing with it and also we can sort of talk more about that see when, when you mentioned all of us uh, dreams is to see an exceptional startup coming we we have few examples from the region that has to basically get out to reach its full potential i'm tunisian i'm, I'm thinking about one one tunisian company instead deep i think yeah, Sadiq, yeah, yeah. Was, basically was, yeah. needed to to get out of tunis because there's no way he would have been able to attract the level of, of money he managed to attract and then the exit and all that and it's it's a big loss for the country and the region because in terms of return in terms of the economy that that would have created if Although you still have those founders with an amazing capacity to keep a level of the team locally based, and there's another company, I mean, I know very well, Yahya, Go My Code, Go My Code who needed to get out of Tunis to expand in, in Africa. And, I, and I, I'm following also the work of uh, Abwab. Yeah, in Jordan, uh, in Jordan, Hamdi. So, yeah, the guy left Uber, yeah. and he went to to, to do something impactful yeah, in, in education. So, what, what, do we see other? I, I think to your point, I, mean, I think unfortunately sometimes there's this kind of region we're here in London to kind of do things from outside to sort of impact inside. Just the, the regulatory space is better. There's also, I would say, kind of this inferiority complex where even like you know whether it's sovereign wealth funds, well, they they prefer to invest in an Arab founder based abroad. To be fair, I mean, I'm sure there are things from a financial perspective where you want to diversify so you can't just invest in the region. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if we kind of like just going you know, across the region, you know, just thinking, you know, starting from, I mean, I think Anab, Dr. Munira Jamjoum, incredible company, incredible founder, sort of superstar, smart, focused on the problem we started with, which is more teacher training and so teacher quality. Uh, Noon Academy is another company which actually yeah. relocated here yeah. to yeah. Uh, to London, you know, started in Saudi, expanded to Egypt, saw a sort of really, really important problem. Mm-hmm. Then, like, say, you know, we have Abwab with Hamdi, yeah. sort of the team of Saudi, you know, Orcas in, yeah. in Egypt, Al Mentor as well, I guess now they're about sort of in the UAE, but initially sort of, you know, an, an Egyptian company, Go My Code, yeah. sort of Tunisia, you know, you can like... We work with also an amazing company in Saudi, Yenmu, which focus on yeah. the kids of disability, which is a big, big, we big topic, at least, yeah. you know, something locally super, super important. created, that is. But so basically, they leave because the regulatory environment is not allowing the scale. Actually, Essentially, because the operation is still there, right? The, like the... Or the implementation of the solution is still in our region. I mean, I'd say, I mean, again, this is just my perspective. I don't know how accurate it is in Safisa's on developing, but one, it's regulatory environment. Yeah. Like it's sometimes easier to operate sort of a business across a region from London because you can then access sort of all the markets. The whole deal yeah. is sort of a UK company and makes it easier. So one, this is not an ethic, but it's certainly a future of work company. I think of Hasub. I don't know if you come across it. They're one of the largest 
freelancer platform for Arabic-speaking workers, which is called Mustaqim. Uh, incredible company, incredible company. I mean, the founders are really good friends, so I'm obviously biased. Out of Jordan as well? Uh, no, they're two Syrian brothers based in Glasgow. Oh, wow. And and they want to employ folks in the region or bring they, them to the... They're already employed, so they... Oh, wow. Operate. So remote, creating remote opportunities. Creating, managing remote opportunities. I, I, I'm not sure what their latest numbers are, but it's wow. millions of sort of users on the platform. And sort of under the Hasub umbrella, they have multiple sort of... So I think Mustaqil is very similar to Upwork. Khamsat is literally like Fiverr. Uh, Ba'id is kind of like an Odesk. And they have, you know, millions of sort of uh, learners on these, or not workers, sorry. And I don't know. I mean, I assume their GMV is also in the millions. And again, two Syrian brothers based in Glasgow. Uh, the entire team is remote. I think their head of engineering is in Egypt. Their uh, head of customer service is in Morocco. Wow. Also, somebody. That's what we love to hear, by the way, at Twice. We would love to amplify the voices of, of yeah, these, yeah. Uh, these founders. Again, and then completely bootstrap. Yeah. Right? Sure. Like, yeah. They have yeah. Who's going who's, who's to invest? They have not taken yeah. any external investment, completely bootstrapped. And now it's like, you know, this is a very successful company. Bravo. Yeah. Uh, mashallah. So, I mean, I, I think it's just sometimes easier to operate from here, especially if you're going for a regional pan Arab play. But the second thing to be tra- is, is the density, right? Like this whole education mm-hmm. reform, talent density. Is a chicken and egg problem. We want to fix the education system, reform education system to create more, I'd say, talented people to hire. So it's a bit you're solving the problem uh, you're also facing. And the last one, I'd say, is ironically access to capital. Mm. When you think about, you know, the number of VC funds that invest in MENA companies versus the number of VC capital that invests in U.S. companies, European companies, Indian companies, uh, it's just sometimes, it's, I'd say, it's almost always easier to fundraise if you're a UK-based yeah. company yeah. than if you're, uh, I don't know, Riyadh or Abu Dhabi-based company. Yeah, yeah it's starting to change. Uh, I mean, te- Techstars, for example, apparently any investment in, in Africa, they asked the founders to relocate to Canada. So yeah. they have a deal with the Canadian government yeah, to allow kind of fast track. Yeah, I mean, see, uh, YC, right? Like the first thing they ask you to do is to set up a, a C-Corp in, in Delaware, Delaware yeah. and that then needs to be the hold code. Yeah. Uh, and again, part of this is you know, about confidence in rule of law, legal yeah. system. Yeah. And again, it's things that's probably like QFC, ADGM, DIFC in, in the region are, are starting to change. Yeah. But, I mean, investors still prefer a Cayman company or something, you know, that's governed by the U- UK law as opposed to, I don't know, some yeah. insert country, local law in, in, in our region. So what, where do you see the future trends for EdTech in MENA region? And are they... Dis- Distinctive from Western counterpart, or are they simply plain catching up? And 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 I want to just create a. I want to also give you a concept, <laughs> which which I part of me admired what happened in Asia and Southeast Asia because I believe they created a, a healthy balance between modernization and Westernization, yeah, yeah. which I believe we have not yet reached that harmony in the Arab world. So, yeah. friend of EdTech. Are we catching up? And what is what is your thought on the modernization, westernization? And can we modernize without westernization in our region? I mean, I think so I'll start with that last one. And I think the answer is emphatically yes. I think, unfortunately, I mean, I mean, I still remember, I mean, I've been to China, but for me, and South Korea, but for me, I think the biggest realization for this was going to Japan for the first time, right? Like, you meet a country and a culture that's certainly impacted by the West, like anywhere else in the world, but it's very proudly and clearly japanese This whole idea that modernity doesn't have to be a Western concept, that modernity 
has always been Japanese. They're very proud. They want to do things the Japanese way. I think the closest thing we have that in our region is maybe Turkey. Yeah. Potentially Iran. Again, depending on sort of how that goes and sort of where that goes. But again, very complicated country, of course. But yeah, in the Arab world, we have this kind of inferiority complex. Oh, the Tufawaja, where like, uh, if, it, if it's, uh, <laughs> it comes from somebody. Blum, 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 I know, like he he can't be correct because yeah. he doesn't speak because he speaks English with an accent, yeah, uh, or French with an accent or whatever it is. So I think huge problem. I mean, I think staying in Qatar, um, Tamim Barghouti has an incredible video on AJ Plus uh, called uh, Martin Luther for Istanbul, mm-hmm. and he he talks about this whole idea of Martin Luther when he reformed sort of the Protestant Reformation. If he had been living in Istanbul, which was the capital of sort of modernity at the time. He would have been a lot less successful if the reform in Christianity. <laughs> True modernity and reform will only come from, like, has to be bottoms up. It's a very hard, almost impo- impossible to do top down. Again, like, I'm not saying top down will always fail. I think it has a role to play at the Torkli Kuan Yu. But again, it needs to be really grounded with yeah. that culture. Um, so, the, to your question, I mean, I, I think, again, we're part of the world. Yeah. We have the same problems that the rest of the world has teacher quality, access to sort of good educational resources and all of that. So I think some of the trends will be the same. And I think, you know, COVID globally, you know, brought a lot of that demand forward, did more to sort of normalize. I, I always say like, there's no worse, like, oh, there was a snow day or a rain day. It doesn't happen anymore mm. because we know everybody can just log in and try to learn online or at least get something online. But I, I do think there are certain parts of the equation that are going to be relevant only to our region. So mm. to your point, so Arabic is a glossic language. Mm. And we need to be very cognizant and conscious of that. When you teach literacy, you're effectively, obviously, spend a lot of time thinking and writing about this. And I think it's one of the most important problems in our region, the distance or the di- dialectical distance between modern standing Arabic and the local dialect. Yeah. And if we continue to deny that and sort of kind of like this ostrich head in the sand strategy that like, okay, the Quran is sacred, but that doesn't mean the Arabic language is sacred. They're two different things. Yeah. And the only way to preserve the yeah. language is actually teach people there. Yeah. And this whole idea, like, uh, the, I think Austrian um, uh, musician Mahler talks about this, right? Like, preserving tradition is the passing of the fire and not holding on to the ashes. Oh, yeah. So I think that is, you know, a very unique thing to our region. Obviously, again, we're not the only diglossic language. The Greeks have dealt with this. The Chinese had something to deal with. But we just need to deal with it properly. Um, obviously, I think we have a lot of conflict, as you said, unfortunately, in our region. So thinking about how do you guarantee access to education, sort of low-resourced environments, it's going to be sort of super helpful, super super critical, super important. And then like a few things that I'd say are only probably super important to us as the MENA region. And you know, the way we train our teachers is going to be different than the way teachers are trained in Singapore because they also have to deal with different variables in the classroom. I also believe in the, in, in the idea that yeah, the great idea exists out there. You should, the Singaporean model, by the way, is like copy but adapt. Yeah, it's not stupid to copy, no, but no. it's stupid to copy and not adapt. Yeah. <laughs> Again, a lot of the city states across the GCC, you know, taking great lessons from Singapore that yeah. work. There's also stuff that hasn't worked. Right? So yeah. Education is probably the space sort of really. Has it's to a move. movement to move. Yeah. It's a big, big, big thing to move. It, yeah. It's so hard to move. And I think it's a systems approach. Do you think now, now that we were talking about? It's so hard to reform education. Do you believe we are at a stage where we're getting a new technology 
AI. Uh, there's there's a lot of buzz around it that right now, and and I think it's just important we cover yeah, yeah, uh, sure. we cover the question. Do you think we are heading into a complete new world? This is the new internet, and with AI, for example, leapfrog the reform not by intention but by obligation. Yeah. I think it's a great question. You know, just to, um, Sam Altman is a very, very smart guy. I'll get you to Sam Altman. Yeah. <laughs> I'm starting soft. We'll just, yeah. <laughs> but the, the thing he told you, right, like when we were talking to him, is that don't believe anybody that's trying to predict anything about AI in the next yeah. 30 years. These guys have always been wrong. Yeah. Um, so, so what I'm going to say is I think the most important thing that things like ChatGPT and other large language models have shown us is the education system was already broken. Mm-hmm. Now we just have to fix it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that like ChatGPT didn't break it, ChatGPT showed us that the broken stuff that we're like, oh no, we can live with this doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Like asking kids to to regurgitate information, being very happy with you know surface level knowledge, not going deep, uh, not thinking deeply about sort of student motivation, that doesn't work anymore because now the barrier and access to cheating was like much easier, but that's a good thing. Mm. That means now as an education system, as educators, we need to think about how do we create better assessments, how to create more meaningful learning uh, because people could always cheat. Now it's just a lot easier and yeah. harder to detect. So yeah. how do you come up with project-based learning and game-based or gameful approaches to pedagogy that say, you know, people aren't intrinsically motivated to this. Because now with ChatGPT, you can give them like scaffolding to take on, you know, the identities of like a scientist, uh, uh, an astronaut, etc. You can abstract a lot of that complexity. And then I think, you know, for me, people are very excited about, okay, how do I get ChatGPT to be somebody's tutor? I'm more excited about how does how do you use ChatGPT to make children's thinking visible. And by, by that, I mean, because when you get a child to teach something, you can see exactly where is their thinking breaking down. So if you, I mean, obviously, huge Pokemon fan, don't have to do that anymore. But, you know, do you get, I'm not excited about, like, do we give every person their personal tutor? Do we give each one of them a Pokemon to teach? Yeah. And then you can see how, like, okay, these are the breakdowns yeah. in the thinking. Your Pokemon can't learn how to add because you're missing this part of the number sense. And I think that's the more exciting part. But having said all that, at the end of the day, it's culture. It's the system. Like, there's a lot about the grammar of schooling. And Larry Cuban at Stanford, and a lot of people have talked about this, that is just much more important than the technology. Of course, because you won't be able, I mean, you could have the best technology, but if you don't have motivated people to, to use it, to use it, then we're, we're... Like, if you're still asking memorization questions on the Tawjihi, it doesn't matter. Like, I remember so when, I, when I did my undergraduate thesis, uh, I went to the Jubilee School in Jordan and I interviewed the math teacher there. This was probably 2009, 2000, long time ago. And he was telling me, you know, that the, one of the saddest things about his job is obviously at the school, there are kids that could do IB and GCSEs and kids that had to do the Tawjih. And these are usually the kids from maybe lower socioeconomic backgrounds because that's what the parents wanted. And he's like, I spend or we spent 10 years teaching these kids to think critically, think outside the box. This is a school for, you know, the gifted. We have all the resources. They get the grade 10 and I tell them, forget all of that. <laughs> it's just, forget it. For the next three years, I want you to memorize math. <laughs> Because if you solve the question, even if you got the right answer, if you solve it incorrectly, you're going to be penalized. So the only way to do this is to memorize exactly. And again, like, so it doesn't matter what technology, if that incentive, if we're still testing memorization, kids are going to memorize. 
I want to I want to go back to Sam Altman. He claims a few things. <laughs> I want to get to re- reaction, and I will start with the map thing. Yeah. And he did a good comparison with with the with the calculator, and we created calculus. Yeah, that was I think three x yeah the amount of increase in, in terms of what we were able to do. And now with with this new tool, he basically project that we're gonna be twenty to thirty x. <laughs> doing it where are we going with it? I mean what, what's your reaction on that yeah, by the way I, I, I genuinely enjoyed that conversation with him I believe that he seems to be genuine he seems to be yeah. on on a world tour to raise awareness yeah. to to talk to the regulator to you know and then to say look guys we unleash something even me as an innovator <laughs> I don't know where this is going but we need to talk together because this is going somewhere big oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to paint a brush. So I think, you know, if, if we look at this from the education, so I mean, you know, then like pre-K earning, your early years, K to 12, and that higher ed of potentially adult economy. I can see what Sam is saying, you know, primarily affecting, you know, adult learning and sort of higher ed, university education, just because those are sort of where now you can really push the technology to sort of its limits. So Ethan Mollick, professor at, uh, I think, University of Pennsylvania, you know, when ChatGPT launched, the first thing he did is now it's required on his. When you complete an assignment for his course, the assumption is you're going to use some sort of large language model, wow. which means now he's asking you to do so much more. Wow. Because you can go and say, and then again, so. And that's creativity, basically. And w- w- what else you, you can, you cannot trick the machine right now. It, it's it's the idea, basically. Yeah. It's like now your creativity, right? Yeah. You can do so much more. Now he yeah. ask what he couldn't ask you. To, take, to do on a take-home exam because it would take, like, you know, three weeks to do. Now I can say, listen, do this with ChatGPT. You can still do this take-home yeah. exam over the weekend. Interesting. Uh, and I think you know, when it comes to workers, I don't know about you, but I use ChatGPT every day, right? Like, um, from everything to, you know, social uh, media content to, you know, going through a PDF quickly to riffing on yeah, the idea I, I, I use it my, my confidence in the English language is still I, I still feel because I learned it at 26 years old so I, I still it's an amazing tool that is correcting me and all that but, but I I think this is the beginning yeah. we, we, it, it's going to get much better and, and you just need to make sure that you you, yeah. Yeah, you use it to yeah, help you but I think as the younger we go so into the K-12 beast so to speak like the system there is very hard to change very difficult but also, I think that's where, and again, it's important across the board, but where these large language models, their representation becomes a lot more important. Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever used Midjourney. Not yet. I haven't played much with you. I have a friend who's always posting stuff about Midjourney, and it's just unbelievable. Incredible. Yeah. But try to ask it to do anything about, you know, Arabs or anything in our part of the region. She doesn't get because it just hasn't been trained ah, on that kind of thing. Not enough data. Not it's enough data. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, if you ask it about, like, oh, like, give me, and, and I've done this, right? Like, my, my wife's behind me, so I've done, you know, Manama as painted by Gustav Klimt. Yeah. I have no idea. I mean, it'll give you, like, something that looks like a mosque, yeah. but you do Riyadh, you do Jordan, yeah. they're all of the same. Same, yeah. Uh, but if you do Paris versus Amsterdam, you, versus, you've got a lot. Very, very yeah. clear. So, once again, we're not equal, or, or yeah. there's an inequality, and even in. It's only the same thing about, like, so I'm used to using this as a very clear example. You can apply the same thing to text-based uh, generative AI and similar. And again, so the younger you go also, like, so for example, like in pre-K early, I can see, you know, ChatGPT ultimately uh, and adding to that teacher's productivity. Removing. I think that's great, you know, removing the things that don't count. But we know for a fact, right, like infants and toddlers don't learn well from screens and machines. Mm. Like they can't pick up language from a screen. So if you give 
a one-year-old Pokemon to talk to, it's not going to learn because it needs to look at a human face. I mean, again, maybe there'll be advances in robotics that I don't know about. But I say, generally speaking, I think the people that are... That wasn't the impression I got when I when I spent a bit of time at Stanford a month ago. I, I got... Yeah, the, 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 this thing with, with these study. There's a study yeah. that contradict the study. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, again, like, I, again, the last time I checked, like, it's really almost impossible to teach really, really young kids language until they're maybe like three or four from non-humans. Okay. Like, if you wow. think, like, they need to hear humans because, and again, there, there are like some like papers and studies on this because they're also looking at like visual cues, they're looking through mouth. Mm. Like, we're obviously, and again, this maybe changes over time, but right now our brain's evolution has wired us to primarily and almost exclusively respond to other humans. Mm. Like, non-human objects, like, there are very clear studies where, like, you know, even as, like, three or four days old, fMRI machines, you can see that, like, where are the kids' eyes trying to look or, like, what parts, sorry, from my, like, what parts of the brain are lighting up. Wow. Uh, again, I'm, I'm butchering, I'm sure, swimming with the science, but there's a lot there that makes it very clear that the human factor, the younger you are, is so much more important. Two more claims, and then I have one final question, and this has taken us to the end of this amazing conversation. One is, I had a teacher that changed, in my view, my life. Ooh. Sam claims that we can have that experience with AI. And then the, the last claim also that I want to hear your... So I, I want to hear oh. on this, like, are we really going to be able to replace this amazing human that plays a role, an influence on us with, with an AI? And then you can have an amazing AI for each learning you, you're having math or, or language. or. And then the last one is more related to the human ex existence in this world with you know, he's comparing ai as potentially as dangerous as a nuclear war oh. or or pandemic and yeah. and hence why the regulation yeah i mean i so to start with the last one again i don't think i'm smart enough to comment on artificial general, general intelligence like for me my notion of you know from philosophical perspective that requires some sort of sentience mm. but again i don't know enough about it but to but i understand all the concerns you know that they AI movement talks about in terms of alignment. Yeah. How do you make sure, even if it's not artificial general intelligence, how do you make sure that it actually understands and aligns with the prompt generator, that which is the human, that yeah. in achieving this task, it doesn't, I don't know, kill half of humanity. Yeah. I think those are sort of serious concerns, but in terms of, uh, and could be as dangerous as... Mo, Mo Gaudat, I don't know if you follow his work. He, he wrote a book recently called Scary Smart. Okay. Very insightful. Okay. No, he respond to some of this. Okay, yeah, no, no. So, so again, like, I'm not a machine learning yeah. expert, I'm not an AI expert, so I don't think I can comment, but based on sort of my sort of general reading. Yeah. And again, like the, the, the other part about AGI that I think is interesting is what makes us very interesting as humans is the subconscious as much as the conscious. Yeah. Yeah. AI doesn't have a subconscious. Not yet. <laughs> <But> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So well, when people say not yet, again, I think it. Can we create? Sentient? That's the whole book about. I, I've, I've been I've been following some of his work. More more Gaudat. More Gaudat, because he he's been with Google. He he yeah, yeah. Google X. He he claims to know. You know he he claims to be ten years ahead of us. And, okay. and he said, guys, they feel <laughs> they're not far away from feeling. So, so that for me, it also goes at this like existential, philosophical, religious. This said like, what is a soul? Yeah. Like, can they feel? Can they be sentient without a soul? In and if, as humans, we've discovered how to create a soul, what does that mean for faith, belief in general? Mm -hmm. So, for me, again, I can't claim I know enough about that. On the tutoring side, I think, like I said, right, I'm more interested in 
artificial intelligence that's easy for kids to program and teach. Yeah. Because that makes it, their thinking very visible. I think it would be super helpful, again, to have personalized instant feedback on task-based learning. But I think the interesting thing about a human tutor is they also can understand how you feel. They can understand cultural cues and context. So like a tutor will always be much more effective if they're from your background. If you could also see yourself in them. Interesting. Very interesting. And I'm not sure how that's going to be done with AI. I mean, again, like, so <laughs> they can't create an AI <laughs> that looks exactly like you, that speak exactly like you. But the problem is, it, will, that's will that where the, yeah. always be a lot more Western, because it's been trained on sort of primarily Western data. Yeah. Is it going to understand Arabic sort of context yeah. and clues and culture? And also, again, what is that AI going to look like? Is it just going to be behind the screen? Is it a chatting, chat age of... Because I think you know, if I'm learning Japanese... It's very, very helpful to chat with an AI bot because I'm not, I'm not going to be embarrassed about any mistakes I make. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to feel like, oh my God, like... Someone's judging me. Judging me, they think I'm an idiot. <laughs> like, like I've made the same mistake a million times. So again, I can see the benefits there, but I don't know. And again, there are startups trying this, like character AI is already trying to get everybody to speak to an Einstein, uh, John Rawl. Wow. No, we don't like to predict much, but I, I'm still going to ask you, what's your prediction in the next five to 10 years? And specifically education in the region. So maybe the question is a bit of your aspiration versus versus the reality of... of... Um, I'd say I, th- I think the metrics that people care about, and obviously that matter from an investment standpoint, and, and I think I think will happen, we'll probably in the next 10 years have our first ad tech uniform. In MENA. In MENA. Wow. But I'd say my aspiration is more about, and again, this, these don't have to be, you know, VC-backed businesses. And I think this is kind of the risk sometimes. There are a lot of really, really good businesses out there that don't need to be VC-backable, don't need to have venture-like returns. That could be really, really important. So my ambition is, I'd say, for more pedagogy-first businesses that like solve real problems, starting with the pedagogy, not with the technology. Whether, again, they end up using ChatGPT or developing their own AI algorithm, super important, but less important than what's the actual problem they're solving. So I'm hoping, you know, in the next 10 years, we have a company, and maybe it's already there, like Ana, that is focused on training Arabic-speaking teachers like Abwab that, you know, is going beyond just, you know, instruction and one-directional learning to sort of more project-based learning. Because that's also, I'd say, a lot of what's missing in our part of the world. There's a lot of kind of like road instruction, less platforms where kids can go and explore something new. And I think that will be a big part of the future. There's a school in in Medellin. We just came back from Colombia. And I I love that part of the world, by the way, because I experienced something unique in the sense of how do you get a city like Medellin used to be one of the most violent city in the world and now it's one of the most innovative and the innovation goes to the, the decentralization goes even at school level so they have they have a benchmark of what they want to achieve but everyone does it the way they want yeah. and it, there's a group of schools called Cosmos have a look at it yeah. it it's brilliant i don't know if if it, we can get inspired by yeah, by, by that in the arab world i hope you will be part of the next i mean unicorn or unicorn that's for me, yeah, exactly. It, 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 it's, it's a brand. It's it, it's important, but at least if if we can support more and more impactful uh, startups and founders that are doing this to elevate the, the region, that would be amazing. I mean, for me, I, I think of entrepreneurship as the purest form of ultra project based pedagogy. Yeah, like you're learning on the job. This is a project. You live and die by how well this project goes, and I think that's a lot more important. Than, <laughs> uh, what value? Session, you know. Yeah. 
making it happen. Yeah. That's kind of part of the problem about Legion is because, and maybe that's where we're playing catch up, because in the U.S. I said, oh, it's all about the unicorns. We're trying to go down this unicorn by committee route. It's okay if the story is to become a unicorn and it's motivates. Why not? Yeah, well, but I, it's 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 one indicator. It's not the most like, and again, it's very surface level. I'd rather have you know a very impactful company, sustainable, good cash flows, etc. Than oh, they got a billion dollar valuation. Because it's very easy to like massage the numbers to get a billion dollar valuation. I don't remember which Chinese leader said. I don't care if the cat is white or black. I just wanted to catch mice. <laughs> so we just want people to make it happen. Exactly. Thank you so much for giving me this platform. Really, really enjoyed it. Covered a lot. And hopefully we can have more of these discussions. I mean, we can revisit what we've talked about. So, okay, maybe we need to zoom in and out in a specific... Uh, it's a pleasure.